welcome back to Butter With That, episode one. Oh, one. We are entering a newish phase of Butter With That, returning kind of back to basics where we talk about one movie every episode. And we are kicking episode 101 off with Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, I know one of Dave's favorites, uh, one of my favorites as well. And I just thought this would be a really kick-ass, fun movie to start um, the next phase of Butter With That off with. But before we dive into Mad Max, how's everybody doing on Inauguration Day 2021? I don't know how anyone else feels, but I, I I feel like a weight has been lifted off of my shoulders a little bit. I can breathe a bit easier today. So that's been nice. Um, you know, Joe Biden's not perfect, and there are a lot of things that I wish he was, but damn, it feels good to not have to see Trump anymore. <laughs> yes, uh, agreed. It was I, I watched the whole inauguration, um, and it was just nice to see like a nice speech. One calling for unity, one calling out, you know, lies and, you know, misinformation and not talking about American carnage at an inauguration speech. That was nice to see. Mm -hmm. And the White House now has its first ever rescue dog. Yeah. One of Joe Biden's German Shepherds. Is it Major Biden? I think it's Major. So uh, has anybody checked out any movies since we've talked about our 100 movies last time? Or seen anything interesting? Watched anything interesting? Oh, um, I watched the Great Muppet Caper. <laughs> How have I never seen this movie before? It was everything I could possibly wanted and dreamed of. The Miss Piggy fountain dream sequence is one of the best, like choreographed, synchronized swimming dream sequences I've ever seen. I know that's a very, very specific category. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> so is that, that is at the, the top of my list. Is that one of the early Muppet movies? That is like, I think late 70 or like maybe early 80s. Yeah, it sounds right. It is a gem and a half. Uh, over the weekend, I watched uh, Crazy Rich Agents. Oh. Um, which I thought was good. It was you know, some actually really funny moments, good casting. Definitely is like rich people porn, which is sometimes fine. Uh, but right man, this. The end. Yeah, the end. <laughs> and even then, I think the movie pokes fun at itself too enough times. Uh, but some really great, amazing food porn when they're on the streets of Singapore and they're cooking up all the dishes and making dumplings. I really wanted some Asian food while I was watching it. It looked really good. And then I also watched uh, The Death of Solomon again, showed it to Alyssa for the first time. Uh, that movie, I texted the group, definitely hits a little differently two weeks after an attempted coup happened. So um, still just as funny, but definitely some parts of it resonated more than others the second time. Well, I guess uh, speaking of, well, this is an awkward segue, rich people porn. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> One uh, one show that I've really enjoyed uh, going back and rewatching since I've, I've recently um, recently had access to uh, HBO Max uh, has been going back and rewatching all of Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, which was hilarious and a lot of fun. Uh, I've now restarted The Sopranos, and in two days I'm on season three. Uh, I'm pretty much just glued to it right now, so uh, living very much in that world right now, and uh, really enjoying it. It's been a while. It's my third time watching the show all the way through, so loving it so far again. 
as a kid near my house, there was a place called Tony Soprano's Pizza. And for the longest time, I thought that's where they filmed the show. Like, as a young kid, not knowing anything <laughs> it about it. It be, obviously. Well, and I live in Jersey, so that takes place in New Jersey, right? Yeah, it's, like, up by, like, Montclair, that area. Right, so I was like, yeah, New Jersey, they, they film it here. That's cool. Um, my tattoo place is in Jersey, and right across the street is Soprano's Pizza. And I took a picture of it once, and I sent it to my mom, and I was like, do you feel like you're home? And she was like, shut up. <laughs> that was funny. But um, speaking of my mom, so she, her and I um, did a like a kind of like a Netflix watch party, but it was like a Hulu watch party, I guess. And uh, she and I watched Black Klansman together. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of stopping and starting in order for us to like uh, catch up with each other. But it was great to hear her reactions to the movie. She had no idea what it was about. And so she was like, oh, Alec Baldwin saying these things. Oh, this, oh, that. But it was, um, it was really interesting and she loved it a lot. Um, I also watched uh, the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix and all about Richard Ramirez. I think there's four episodes. It is so well done. It's one of the best true crime documentary docuseries that I've, I think I've watched ever. Um, I will say, though, that if you're interested and um, you want to watch about Richard Ramirez, there is stuff that is mentioned in these episodes that I never knew about him. And I think, you know, you, you kind of figure out why, but, um, you know, in case this is for anybody like trigger warning, um, child sex abuse, a lot of that. And also, um, they show like crime scene pictures. So if that's not your thing, then I would pass on it, but it was really, really well done. Netflix has kept telling me every time I log on to watch that, that that this is for you, perfect for you and your recommended top five. What's so cool, and I didn't know this, so one of the detectives that, uh, so they interviewed the detectives that solved the case, and it was so cool to listen to them, but one of the detectives also solved the Hillside Strangler case. I had no idea that happened, so that was really cool. I was looking for a new show to watch and Netflix was recommending that one and it was also re recommending Lupin and I went for Lu I started it and it's great. <laughs> it's like, it's like, have you, have you guys seen advertisements for it? Oh, oh, so it's a French uh, detective thriller. It's kind of like a Sherlock. It's like Francis Sherlock Holmes. Um, and it's starring Omar Sy and he's really wonderful and it's, I wouldn't say it's like too complex and like uh, it's very quick and breezy and a lot of fun and really stylish. And I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm only two episodes in, but like so far it's good. But yeah, it was like Netflix was like either true crime doc you should watch or very fantastical <laughs> detective thriller and i went for the fantastical detective thriller is that english language it's in french oh it's in french cool yeah all right so let's dive into mad max fury road uh dave i know for you this one has been a long time coming so i hope i'm not stepping on your toes by picking this one uh no not at all any opportunity to talk about this movie is an exciting opportunity to me and uh yeah it's one i've looked forward to since we first had the idea for this show so glad to be doing it 
So if you're unfamiliar with uh, Mad Max Fury Road, this is the, I believe, fourth movie in the Mad Max series or franchise. Uh, released in May of 2015. It was directed by George Miller, who also you know worked on all the other Mad Max movies. Also directed Happy Feet, was a producer on Babe, and a the director of Babe 2. So he has quite an eclectic filmography. I couldn't think of... More two more opposite franchises: <laughs> the Mad Max franchise and the Babe franchise. Babe, pig in the city and Fury Road. What? <laughs> I want to see. That's that's the movie I want to see. <laughs> There's all sorts of stuff with pigs and like using methane gas from pig farming in the third movie. So there could be an easy bridge to uh to a crossover here. I think. I want to keep it light, though. I feel like if I <laughs> call him up, I'd be I like, don't... I don't want to comment on. Well, no, I, you know, actually, no. Environmental, like, comment on uh, environmental destruction and ant, like factory farming, sure. But like, but it's it'll still be babe. So it'd still be like somewhat. So, light. Christine, is Babe joining the Mad Max universe? Right. Or is Mad Max joining the Babe? Now that you mention it, I think the latter is perfect. All of the Mad Max characters just just emerge into this bucolic English countryside. The war ring just charges through. The <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Um, have you ever seen Spice World? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So there is <laughs> there's a scene in Spice World where um they have like a double decker tour bus and it's like the the stereotypical like red double decker bus and they are going over the the London bridge but it's opening and so <laughs> they have to like jump over it and instead of like doing a speed they didn't of course they didn't do that um it's it's <laughs> It's like animated kind of. It's definitely fake, like a, a toy double decker going over like a toy bridge. And so I am imagining the war rig doing that, just like boop, right into London. A quick little trip around London. <laughs> but like their truck is like spilling gas everywhere. And so in addition to being directed by George Miller, it was also written by him along with Brendan McCarthy, who has done a lot of work in comics and different TV shows and movies. And then uh, Nico Lathoris as well, you know, all credited writers. Um, music was by Junkie XL, who has gotten a lot of work over the past decade. Um, edited by Margaret Six L, and then starring Tom Hardy as Max, Charlize Theron as Furiosa, Nicholas Holt as Nux, Hugh Keens Byrne as Immortan Joe, who is also, I believe, in the third Mad Max. First one. He's the villain, uh, the antagonist uh, Toe Cutter in the original Mad Max. So coming on back for the fourth one. And then I also learned when doing research that Zoe Kravitz was one of the wives, mm -hmm. uh, which I found surprising because she's popping up in a lot of places now. Uh, it had a budget of, you know, between 155 and 185 million and a box office return of 375 million. So some articles I saw were comparing it to Edge of Tomorrow, sort of a similar sci-fi budgeted movie that was moderately successful at the box office. Um, unfortunately, I'm not quite sure why Warner Brothers, they paired it against Avengers Age of Ultron and Pitch Perfect 2 came out all at the same time. So those two movies made a fuck ton of money. Maybe they should have pushed Mad Max a little later into mm -hmm. the summer. Um, critically, 
pretty fucking beloved. Uh, 97% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 86% score um, for the audience on Rotten Tomatoes, nominated for a ton of awards, uh, 10 Academy Awards, and they won six out of the 10 nominations. And fun fact, it was the second most nominated film that year, uh, The Revenant, right up there, uh, which also starred Tom Hardy. So 2015, a good year for Tom Hardy. Um, Sam, I know this was your first time seeing the movie. Christine, have you seen Fury Road before? I saw it in theaters. Nice. Uh, Well, before I get to your take, Sam, as being the first person, you know, this being your first time seeing it, just wanted to give a brief plot synopsis uh, for our listeners who haven't seen it yet. Uh, Years after the collapse of civilization, the tyrannical Immortan Joe enslaves apocalypse survivors inside the desert fortress, the Citadel. When the warrior Imperator Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, leads the despot's wives in a daring escape, she forges an alliance with Max, Rocketansky, played by Tom Hardy, uh, who's a loner and was also a captive of the Citadel. Fortified in the massive armored truck, the War Rig, they try to outrun the ruthless warlord and his henchmen in a deadly high-speed chase throughout the wasteland. Pretty straightforward plot, which is really all that this movie needed. Uh, but Sam, what were your thoughts on watching Mad Max Fury Road for the first time? Um, I think I mentioned this in the group chat, but it was nowhere near what I expected. I honestly had no idea what I expected anyway, but um, I had no clue about anything in the Mad Max universe. So I was really going in just being like, okay, just hit me with it. And so I think that when the movie first started, I was a little put off by it. And it took me, I would say it took me maybe like 45 minutes to actually like get into it and to like it. Once I realized that I had to activate suspension of disbelief, I was like, oh, okay, no, this movie rocks. It's so good. Um, But I had to do that first. Um, Things that I really like um, that these souped up cars can just handle literally anything and everything i thought that was really cool um i love all the women um you know you have the wives you have furiosa but then you also have pardon me i I don't remember um their name yeah at the very end when they come back and they kick some major ass too and you know they're not on screen for very long but i found myself getting really attached to them too so um i thought that was awesome the um special effects were great and something I thought that they did really well is like hit you with this urgency and like you I I felt nervous and I felt like god I'm being followed too like we can't stop ever we just got to keep going so I don't know I think the movie did what it it planned to do it wanted to do it worked I liked it I think that's a really great way of phrasing it planned what it wanted to do and then it just executed it uh and I think that is sort of for me, the definition of movie magic is when all parts of a film are working simultaneously. One's not really overshadowing the other, and they all have kind of like a cohesive vision to create something absolutely spectacular, which I think Mad Max Fury Road is. Uh, Dave or Christine, do you want to jump in with your thoughts? Yeah, Fury Road um, is a movie that, uh, <laughs> that, I mean, really blew me away um, and well exceeded my expectations. I've been a huge fan of the franchise for a lot of reasons for a really long time. And was kind of waiting on this movie for probably about 12 years before it came out. And really didn't realistically expect there would be another one. So I figured if they made it, maybe it wouldn't quite hold up or, you know, it would have, um, it would have like too much use of like 
modern CGI and like compositing and so on that might get distracting, uh, which for reasons that I'll return to in the production notes, it doesn't. And I was also unsure of uh, someone other than Gibson taking the helm as uh, the lead Max Rakitansky. I mean, obviously, it's uh, nice not to have Mel Gibson in this movie, but um, he was pretty like inseparably linked to the character for me growing up. So uh, I was unsure of that. But, you know, uh, the movie blew blew away my every expectation for a lot of reasons. And I've got a lot of uh, production notes to that effect, uh, a lot of notes about the world building and a lot of notes about its themes, which I'm sure we're going to cover as we continue. Where does this rank for you personally, if you had to pick your favorite Mad Max movie or favorite two? That's really hard. I would have to probably tie this and Road Warrior um, because Road Warrior is, I think, as good of a film of its era. Like, I, it can't get away with like the splendor and spectacle that this movie achieves, but it definitely has like a lot of incredible moments and really great themes and is, is definitely worth anybody's time. Also, just real quick, uh, the three mo- uh, four movies as they were were uh, Mad Max in 1979, which is uh, basically introducing Max Rakitansky, um, who is a police officer working at the Halls of Justice, which is kind of a decaying uh, semblance of what a police force used to be uh, as marauding bands have taken to the highways uh, for gasoline. His wife and child are killed, and then uh, that sort of forms the tragic backstory and framework of the character. After that, we move into Road Warrior, where uh, it's no longer the fall of society. Everything is in ruin. It is the wasteland now, and it's uh, marauding bands just sort of patrolling the highways for gasoline, uh, and he links up with a compound that's pumping their own oil uh, through this deal that he hatches, uh, who are trying to defend themselves from a siege of marauders uh, in a really great movie. Then the third installment, uh, which is uh, people have their pretty mixed feelings about in some ways, and so do I, is uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, starring Tina Turner. Tina Turner, uh, or Auntie, as she's known, uh, struggles for power against Master Blaster, which is two people, uh, in Barter Town, which is kind of the first like established trade settlement that we see in the Wasteland. Um, so it's kind of hotly debated where this movie fits in with all that. I think it makes the most sense if it goes in that chronological order, because in this one, interestingly enough, it is multiple different uh, like kind of compounds that are dealing with one another in terms of trade and in terms of cooperation and in terms of exports and imports. So I think that that makes it a really interesting next step for the franchise in heightening and exploring the wasteland. It's also a little strange because Tom Hardy is visibly younger than Mel Gibson was in 1985. So it's it's confusing, but I think it, you know, it fits in there pretty well, especially if you consider it chronologically in the world building sense. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. I've never seen any of the Mad Max movies before, but especially revisiting because I saw this in theaters in 2015 and then revisiting it now definitely makes me want to go back and watch those first movies. Yeah, I had that question <laughs> of like, where the hell did this sit? Was like it a reboot or what have you? So I guess the answer is, eh. I've heard a theory that like, if you know the second movie, Road Warrior, there's a child called the Feral Child, who is just kind of like a feral kid who Max kind of befriends and helps. Um, and the theory is that maybe this new Max is the Feral Child, but it's got the same name. He's still Max Rakotansky, so I don't know about that. Uh, I don't really buy into that. Well, anyway, I have a really big soft spot for Tom Hardy. I don't know what it is, but I'm glad he was in this movie. Only want good things for him. I think that's a really great transition to jump into. I kind of like divided my notes into three parts, the journey, the characters, and themes. And so I think let's just dive 
uh, right into these characters. Uh, we've talked about him a few times with Tom Hardy, uh, the lead of this movie. I also have a very soft spot for Tom Hardy, but what I thought was really interesting, you know, and this has been said a lot, but this is really uh, Furiosa's movie. This is really Charlize Theron. She is, in a lot of ways, kind of feels like the main character where um, Max kind of feels more like an audience surrogate. And her journey of, you know, being seemingly one of Immortan Joe's like top generals, then going on to basically kidnap his wives and go on this, you know, chase throughout the desert to try to save them and to try to give hope um, to the small group of women. So how do you guys feel about Furiosa and Theron? Uh, I suppose I'd quickly add that um, with the other movies, that's not too atypical either. Um, the first movie is pretty much about Max and his life and kind of the fall of society. But then um, the other movies, he's pretty much a vehicle through which we explore other people's lives in the wasteland. So um, I do think it's it, it's a really valid point as as concerns this movie in particular within the franchise. But it's not uh, unusual for the franchise as a whole, which is kind of one of the more captivating and unique things about it, that Max is sort of a stoic, silent uh, audience surrogate, as you said, um, for us to experience other people within the wasteland and their situations. But that being said, Furious is an amazing character. Uh, Charlize Theron's best role in performance, I think maybe ever, and she completely nails it and brings um, a a whole new element to it that really advances the story. I think that Charlize is amazing as Furiosa, and she doesn't even have there isn't that much dialogue. So it really is in every glance, every look, every fight sequence. She has so much strength, obviously, in every fight sequence, but you can just see it in her ex- every expression. Um, and I think she, she was absolutely perfect for that role. I couldn't imagine anyone else just embodying Fur- Furiosa like she does. Yeah, I think... Uh, this is the only I I, pro- I think I saw Happy Feet years and years and years ago when it was just on TV. But this is the only George Miller movie I've seen, and so it just he gave so much. You know, I feel like the wealth that he gave wasn't in the written word, but in the direction and in the detail of the world building. That's really where the wealth of his creation came from. Not you know a Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin. I'm going to write a million lines of dialogue, but I'm going to give you here's a toolbox and here's a you know a, a place to play in. And then let's really flesh these characters out that way instead of just by saying a million lines of dialogue. Yeah, I didn't need much dialogue at all. Um, really, what was there were were a few sort of pointed lines, and then the rest it was like, all right, I know exactly what's going on. And I was I was thinking about like some of the characters and the character development, and I was like, does Furiosa really go through a character arc? And I was like, maybe not, not really. But it's more that she changes the circumstances around her so much so that other people are changing to finally recognize that, like, the power that she, like, has in changing the Citadel and in changing things around her. I feel like the change that went through her happened before we enter the movie. It was like, it was something just, tur- like, changed where she was like, all right, Today's the day I'm going to get these wives out and we're going to go. So it was like that process happened before and it was just like full throttle her moving forward and then things and people changing around her, which I think is kind of like a cool way to approach a main character as well. And I think her and Max watching the second time, I really like they are for a lot of the movie antagonistic forces, thematic antagonistic forces against each other. And they're both sort of Christine that I just thought of this when you said it both 
people who are so sure of themselves that they're just bound for a collision course and how they bounce off of each other and eventually kind of learn to work together when they, you know, get to the end. That That's true. And I, I actually sort of walk back the idea that she doesn't go through an arc because there's that moment where they reach the green place or what was supposed to be this Eden destination. And it's, it's nothing. Uh, and that beautiful scene when she's alone in the desert, just screaming. And so that is definitely a recognition, um, or like a, a really important turning point in her character. Um, uh, but I also just liked seeing her just follow through with this ex- just determined force, uh, and then carry everyone with her. <laughs> Um, I, Christine, the scene that you mentioned where for you, I, I have the hardest time saying it. Yeah. Uh, my, my mouth just does not want to form these words. Um, when she realizes that the green plate is no more, you know, so many things are happening. It's one, her recognizing that something she like believed in so much, like with her whole self, whole being was not true anymore is like it's a really hard thing for people to to go through and to kind of move on from but it's not only something that she like used as hope and that she looked forward to and had this belief it's not just that but it's also I've led these women through all of this to keep them safe and I I didn't do that and so I I also felt that in in her moment where she collapses and um I really appreciate that. I feel like it's a moment that you can kind of interpret however you want. Um, but Throne just did a, a fantastic job. One character that really, second time, really surprised me as well was Nicholas Holt as Nux, uh, one of the war boys who, Dave, maybe there's some more world building you know about, but I guess these, are they like genetically modified albino people who have like a half, because they bring up half-life or just kind of like grunts in a Morton Joe's army who do his bidding and believe you know, if they sacrifice themselves for a Moton Joe, that they'll be reborn. Well, as concerns the War Boys, they uh, they really aren't explored in other movies uh, of the franchise. This is a, a new introduction that they're a part of a new society. Uh, we've never encountered the Citadel or its or its uh, its warriors really before. We've seen like similar marauding bands, but uh, n- typically not so like centrally located and um, so built upon like a weird, almost like religious demagogue based ethos. So it's it's definitely uh, sparked something new within the franchise, which is like really refreshing and a really like nice extension of heightening that world building and exploring the wasteland. And like this own, you know, you we go pretty in depth into this specific citadel culture, but then also seeing glimpses of the bullet farmers culture a little bit, just like in their designs, how they look, and the gas town people as well. Um, so the war boys, I think, fit really nicely into the world that Miller was creating. And out of all the characters, I'd say Nux has the biggest um, arc of growth, going from this disposable suicide soldier into somebody who really cares about these wives and um, really will do all that he can um, to help save them and you know believe in the cause, believe that he's been abandoned by Morton Joe. And I just think Nicholas Holt is just a really fantastic actor. I thought he was one of the be- better parts of the new X-Men movies. He was really good in The Favorite. Uh, which I talked about last episode. So kind of thoughts on Nux, Nicholas Holt's portrayal in this movie. I um I wanted to text the group chat and being like, I can't stand him. Um, but I figured if they were keeping him alive, then he must 
be an important part at the end. So I, I held off texting that because I'm like, well, I don't want to like have to eat crow. And I'm glad that I, I held that back because he does change so much. But the war boys, Jesus Christ, they're so, they're great characters and, and it's very interesting, but they're so fucking annoying. They're so loud. Um, and, um, you know, uh, when they have their cars, you know how they have like the big poles and like the skulls on them. I thought that was, I, I had no idea what those were for. And I was just like, oh, is that supposed to be like, here are all the people I killed, blah, blah, blah. And then when they actually used the, those poles in the movie, I was like, ah, oh, no, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> I love that all those characters just embody this sort of like masculine posturing. It's farcical. It's just mm-hmm. so funny. And especially with the character of Nux, it takes him like four near-death experiences for him to finally like get with the picture and be like, all right, I guess I need to help this other crew and not the war boys who are just fucking idiots. <laughs> but well, part of it, part of it too, I think is the the lent sense of tenderness through uh, one of the wives that encounters him in the back when he, um, after he's failed to, to live up to his demagogue standards, uh, he literally shouts after he fails mediocre, but then experiences a moment of like genuine tenderness and feminine tenderness in a world where there is this sense of like constant masculine posturing. Oh, and the idea too, that like everybody is a victim of Immortan Joe, like even the soldiers who like brutalize and kill people. Like everybody has been victimized by the system that this one guy has set up and that, you know, society at large now in the apocalypse has just adopted. Um, Similar, you know, to, you know, one reason why I love Star Wars is that I feel like I want an action figure. I want a spinoff story of like so many of the background characters um, that we see, especially the guitar flamethrower guy. That's the Doof Warrior. Uh, There is a backstory about him that was published in a series of uh, comics that came out uh, just freshly after the movie, which I read and uh, did not like. <laughs> they they are kind of interesting. Like one explores the rise of Immortan Joe. One explores the Doof Warriors backstory. Uh, one explores Furiosa's backstory and completely mishandles the themes. Um, instead of her being someone who is, uh, you know, helping these these wives confront a world they're unfamiliar with and its brutality for the means of them, you know. It, having a better life uh instead kind of in the comic at first and supposedly before the movie takes place is sort of more like oh well you're really taking for granted your position as you know human incubators to a maniac so it's it's pretty mishandled in the comics i have to say so uh sometimes more backstory is not a good idea the 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 idea of creating you know imagine you know as a kid when you're playing with like your star wars action figures like making your own story like that level of creativity definitely feels alive um, within the movie, um, any kind of stand outside characters um, for you three that kind of have stuck with you? I mean that that music, the the guitarist in the that you had mentioned. What's his character's name? Uh, the character's name is uh, the Doof Warrior. D O O F Warrior. When I I saw it with my brother in theater, we just like were like screaming. It was just so funny the way the camera would zoom or he would like in his like straps would just like zoom in and zoom out and just like <laughs> guitar solo after guitar solo it was so funny it's like heavy metal the the magazine come to life 
it's pretty insane. These were just there, you know, just brief flashes, but the crows that were in the like marshy place where the green land used to be, like just these giant stilted creatures, like even just little moments like that are just like moments that have really stuck with me from this movie. If like, I want to know more about them. How do they get there? They're on the stilts, just like, and like you said, Dave, maybe those answers like with a million Star Wars spinoff stories aren't really what we need. But in my mind, I love thinking about what are, you know, what is going, you know, what's going on with all these characters. I thought it was really effective that those crows uh, on stilts only got about a 10 second scene. Mm -hmm. And it was so eerie and so effective for that reason. And then it be, in the beginning, you don't have any context for what that is. And then I feel like the fact that it was, it was so short makes it even more impactful but creepy when you realize that that was the wasteland that was supposed to be this promised green oasis. And I think Immortan Joe is handled similarly as well with you don't really, you know, especially in the beginning of the movie, you just see him kind of little moments here or there. There are some prolonged shots, but you don't get a really good chance to like see him stand next to people or have huge scenes of dialogue. And especially the beginning scene when you see them assembling him, it gave me like Darth Vader kind of vibes, like a really pervy Darth Vader and like kind of the breathing mask too. And we talk about um, posturing masculinity. He has like that clear breastplate with like all these fake medals and like ribbons on them. I thought he was a really compelling, um, you know, big bad guy in the movie who is also incredibly gross and disgusting. For me, yeah, all the like all the side characters are really interesting, but I think that I would be more interested in just learning more about the things that we already like saw put in place. So, you know, Max is captured and used as a blood bag. Like I I want to know like a little bit more about why they need the blood bags. I mean, we kind of saw with Furiosa at the end. Um, so I like I would like to know a little bit more about that. And then as like upsetting and disgusting as I think it would be, um, the son that I don't know what his name is. Which one? There's Rictus and Corpus. I had a brother. <laughs> Rictus, I guess. Um, I I would be interested in like learning uh, about like that life and and why they have sons and like that kind of thing and what happens to all that after the movie because the movie ends with you know furiosa returns triumphant the wives go up the elevator oh yeah corpus is done for oh yeah yeah (laughs) at the end of that movie you can see it in his face it's not gonna go well (laughs) um well i think that brings us then to talking about the journey um, going down, you know, the movie sets up with Furiosa taking a giant fuel tanker, taking the war rig down to the fuel town to get fuel to bring back to the Citadel. But she takes a left turn and is going east um, toward the Greenland to escape um, yeah, Immortan Joe's rule. And goddamn, are these car scenes amazing. Um, in a movie that where kind of if you talk it out, it sounds like it could be really boring, but every single car scene feels totally unique, totally different. New mechanics are introduced, um, new ways to get to the car, different types of vehicles are introduced. Sam, you brought up how, you know, oh, what are those giant things on the sides of cars? And then those are brought back. This movie does such a great job in, you know, setting up something and then either repeatedly using it or having it pay off much later in the movie. I think one of my favorite standout sequences are when they go through the canyon to try to, you know, blow up the bridge to block the war rig. These guys on motorcycles just throwing grenades on top of the car, um, just over and over, jumping off of it, leaping off of it. And Dave, I'm sure you have a lot of notes about um, the production production notes about these action scenes with the cars. 
Yeah, there's just a ton of stuff that I can get to at some point, I guess. Something, uh, Sam, you had mentioned before was sort of this idea of like suspension of disbelief as you're entering this world. I would say as far as like the plausibility of like the universe and the characters, there's certainly an element of suspension of disbelief. But at the same time, as Connor, you mentioned, I thought every single sequence was so meticulously done. And as you were saying, like every part of the car is addressed and there's a reason for those being there. And then the way that characters move seems so seamless. And I find that extremely, whether or not plausible, like the the, the sequence of those actions happening are so tight and make so much sense to me. Like the hook around the tree as the tree, they're using that to pull the truck out of the mud. I was focused on that wire. What's going to happen to the wire? And they had a little like mechanism in the front of the truck to wind that wire back into the truck as they kept moving. It was just like little details. Everything is, is noticed and acknowledged and utilized in such a wonderful way too. Um, so that I find believable. <laughs> well, Christine, I'm, I'm glad you actually brought that up when they're using the the hook and trying to get the the uh, war rig out of the mud. That was something that I was like, I have to suspend my disbelief because we had just watched this war rig just survive all of this damage. We just watched Immortan Joe's fucking whatever just literally go over um, mountains. We just saw that and then you're going to get stuck in the mud. I'm sure that there's like, you know, a reason to say, hey, this isn't like, you know, indestructible. There are still moments, but I, I just had to laugh because it's like we saw all this and then that, that's the thing. Um I did like how they used the car door to put under the wheels. Like I yeah. put like my uh, floor mat under wheels, so I got stuck on ice. So, and the the plow, the like what could be a snow plow, but it turns into a dust plow in the front of the truck, so that the fire uh, extinguishes in the front of the uh, like car part. Enter correct <laughs> terminology, but yeah, I thought that was so good. Yeah, I've got a whole thing about that, too. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I love about this movie is that nothing is outside. None of this is really outside the realm of, like, real-world physics. Like, this is barely a sci-fi film. It's really pretty much just, like, an action film that pretty thoroughly applies itself to the laws of, you know, conceivable physics in this world, which is really similar to our own, or a version of our own that has fallen into disrepair, uh, both uh, in terms of climate and uh, and culture. But... Yeah, I, I, I think that's backed up also by a lot of the production because as we'll discuss, pretty much everything was actually filmed. I'm so glad you said that because I was wondering that the whole time. I really could not tell what was practical effects or what was CGI. And then I kind of figured, I was like, I wonder if that means it was all actually really done. Like 90% of it all actually filmed. Yeah, as we'll, as we'll get into when we, when we cover production a little more. And that's such a great, you know, in my theater background, you know, going to school for theater, we talked about, you know, strength through adversity. And, you know, like you have these limitations. That's when a lot of times creativity really blossoms. Because if you, you know, I was thinking of George Lucas in the prequels, Miller 100% could have added 5 million cars with green screen to chase them. 
And on paper, that would have sounded more epic than a fleet of 30 vehicles chasing them. But because they're all real and that's like a real working unit, the cars really blow up. Like it just feels so much more impactful than just a sea of copy pasted, you know, apocalypse cars. Dave, do you want to dive into some of those uh, action production notes now? I mean, yeah, there's there's tons of stuff that I have, I've written up about this movie because I've seen it like uh, it's been at least like 20 times. Uh, this time around, uh, really thinking about it and really preparing some notes was really exciting because I think it highlights just how a movie that's this kind of like jaw-dropping of a spectacle was so tenaciously made and so incredibly made largely using practical effects. Um, so the production of the film uh, was actually delayed. It, filming was slated at one point to begin in 2003 with Mel Gibson reprising his role. Uh, but it was delayed in large part due to international tension surrounding the Iraq war. At one point in the delays, uh, Miller and his crew envisioned this as an animated feature film. Uh, at another point, Miller pushed for it to be a black and white film, uh, later re-released as the black and chrome edition. But the studio emphasized that it would drive down ticket sales. Miller and uh, Brandon McCarthy built the film frame by frame over 3,500 storyboard panels upon which the script was then based to focus on the film's imagery and uh, stunt set pieces. So for like example, uh, it's like kind of Christina, what you're talking about with the fluidity of movement and everything. Like when we fear, first see the war party booking it across the flats, there's that beautiful tracking pan of Max tethered to the front of Nux's car, then back to Nux driving, then back to Slit as his racer, then back to a giant drum vehicle, then to the flame-throwing, guitar-wielding doof warrior. It's just like such an incredible shot that really illustrates uh, the oft-overlooked necessity of storyboarding films. It was shot in sequence over eight months in the uh, Namib Desert. Uh, it was shot using an edge arm, which is a long camera rig affixed to a car, and it used up to 140 vehicles. Um, it was shot in Australia, right? Uh, a lot of most of it was shot in Nanabib Desert in Africa. And also speaking of the stunt work at ver and uh, CG v practical effect conversation, keeping with the spirit of the original series, nearly all of the stunts, fights, and crashes were choreographed, practiced, and filmed without the aid of CGI. Uh, in fact, the film's use of CGI was relegated pretty much just to removing rigging and safety cables or further enhancing the background, leaving most of the film's action to principal photography. Uh, Max and Furiosa's fight in the first half, it was choreographed, but still resulted in Charlize Theron breaking Tom Hardy's nose. Um, they even actually filmed uh, the now iconic pole cats, uh, the guys sort of on those poles and the moving vehicles, uh, on moving vehicles in real time uh, after Miller found the digital composite less convincing. That was like watching a circus performance, like like theater and circus combined and just being so like awestruck i love those pole guys <laughs> well and i thought that was so smart that that was brought more toward the end of the movie because for the most of the runtime people are fragile people get run over cars explode characters die and so it's like man like with you know as the pole cats are going over and pick up people you're like they could really drop them or something could hit them and they could fall and die so it's like such a smart move to kind of save that trick toward the end of the movie and to save that visual spectacle for the end of mm -hmm. the movie as well yeah I mean, as with Road Warrior, uh, they were pretty they were pretty meticulous because these stunts were pretty insane and pretty dangerous, involving high speed crashes uh, with pretty huge vehicles. So as with Road Warrior, um, the uh, previous installment, 
a team of paramedics were on site for the big war rig crash. And uh, in a heart-stopping moment on set, Miller and the crew mistook the Nux dummy with the actual stunt driver and feared that he'd been decapitated. Fortunately, he was fine. My God. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, maybe, like, 10 minutes of not knowing. Woo! God. <laughs> Pretty tense stuff, but you know, um, they, they filmed everything really safely and they never, they reportedly never sent anything out, uh, into the film studio or into the film set, uh, or into the production without having thoroughly tested everything. I went like, was Tom Hardy? I mean, obviously he was strapped to the front of the car, but I wonder how fast, like though, the, when he was initially still in his like weird metal muzzle thing and then strapped to the front of that car, how fast that car was going and how many takes they needed <laughs> to get with all those sequences. If, if, as you mentioned, Dave, at the beginning, if Tom Hardy is the vehicle for the audience, I just love imagining viewers just being strapped to the front of that car going like a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> if they were to make a, uh, like a, like the Shrek 4D ride that's at Universal if they were to make like a theme park attraction where you sat down in the theater and it was a Mad Max movie, just buckets of dirt being thrown in your face. I mean, I would just suggest going ahead and looking up on YouTube. You can find tons of clips of the unedited original footage, like crash footage and things. And it's, it's breathtaking because it's pretty much exactly how it's rendered on the screen. Also, uh, just as far as uh, Christine, you were talking about uh, like the speed of vehicles and so on. I mean, that is sort of like a camera trick of this franchise in a little bit. And one of kind of Miller's trademarks is these sort of sped up quick cut edits that um, that sort of create a, an exaggerated sense of momentum. Uh, but the film is edited around that, too. I mean, like when we zoom in on Furiosa driving and then crashing into a vehicle and then continuing that zoom on her face all with this like lightning pace, it really creates this really really intense momentum through its editing yeah those sped up sequences like it like give it like this adrenaline rush that then i as the audience member was definitely feeling um and i think that yeah it's like as a viewer you you end up having to like like psychologically match the pace of what is like flashing in front of you especially because of a lot of those sped up like edited sequences and cuts well-deserved Oscar win for best editing. For and sure. some, some amazing notes about the editing too. That's uh Margaret Sixill Miller's wife. Um, she won the Oscar for best editing uh, as we've discussed for the film and uh, was stated that when she was selected to work on the film, it was because in Miller's words, if a guy did it, it would look like every other action movie, um, which this movie really doesn't. Uh, it, it's definitely got this real acuity to visual storytelling. Um, there's one shot in particular where the war rig pulls over for repairs. Um, and we see that it's it's kind of pulling over in the shot and slowing its pace. And then it's a hard cut to the door dropping off as they're already doing repairs. And it just saves so much time and exposition. It is just awesome filmmaking. There's also uh, Max rising from the sand. Uh, after the first initial chase, which is initially in slow-mo and then suddenly bursts into this energetic series of quick cuts. That scene, I'm so glad you identified that scene, Dave, because initially it's a, it's a, to me, it looked like another landscape shot. And what I mm -hmm. thought I was looking at was a distant mountain with the, with the sky behind it. And then as you start to see him move your, your, your sense of like, of proportion 
come, you're like, come to realize it's his head. But I thought that was such a masterful way of also playing with the landscape and the the Mm -hmm. size of things. Um, I think Sam, you had mentioned earlier, like the idea of us feeling caught up with sort of the like journey across this land. And it's like, Oh, you got to go. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. And I thought another wonderful reinforcement of this sense of urgency and fear a lot of the times was like the, the shots that always keep the uh, pursuing uh, war boys in the bat in the like scenery. It's like, there would always be these cuts to the horizon and you could see those 20 cars or how many is ever is in that gang. Like, always in the distance. And it, it, like, I think it added to that idea of like fear of, and of being trailed constantly. But like, I think it's also just the way that the, the, the shots were set up, uh, to show the expansiveness of the landscape, but at the same time, the like, like looming, uh, chasers, uh, and that adding to the sense of fear. It definitely felt like a little bit like a mind fuck too, because yeah, you do always see them. So, you know, they're, they're a constant threat, but then, you know, when um, they all get into the fight with Nux, he's able to go right back to them. He's like, okay, I'll do that. And you know, it, it seemingly doesn't take him all that long. So it's just so interesting because I think, you know, something else at play here is just like the environment and the scenery and how uncomfortable that already makes you. And and when they go through that, what like the desert storm thing and how it's so disorienting, I think like that was also a part of it, like not really knowing just how far away they were. That, was that desert storm was like wild. The lightning, the red dust. Um, you see um, Nux do the like, uh, spray paint on his mouth. I guess that's some sort of drug. I don't know if it's just spray what paint. What is that? What what? Yeah, so that's another example of a show don't tell thing in this movie. And I've got a couple of those. It's just this notion of just uh, it's never quite explained, but it's it's something that you can kind of project onto or like pick up cues from. Um, it's sort of like almost like an analogy for huffing, which is just sort of like you know a, a version of a hot, a cheap high that you can get, uh, especially in a wasteland where you know they don't have hydroponics or, or uh, you know, too much advanced chemistry to synthesize drugs. So you know it's old spray paint cans, but it it also suggests somewhere within the lore that it may have some sort of like uh, almost like amphetamine based property. I think there's also an element to a to it of just being like this like sort of sport ritual, like like. I could see whether it has sort of like drug-like properties or not. It just being this, this ritual that just like psychs them up for battle or for sport or for war or whatever. And I, and I, yeah, I love that. I really don't know what it is, but it's just embedded in there. Like, you know, we got to get ready. Get and and you, yeah, Dave, you're right. You don't need much more than that. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many little things that we learn about the war boy and the Citadel culture that is never really put into words, um, which is, in my opinion, one of the real, the most brilliant things of this movie. It really trusts its audience to just like pick up on visual cues and connect the dots. Um, things like, uh, for example, that iconic gesture that they do where it's um, the four tented fingers intersected, uh, which is, you know, eight fingers in a V, V8 which is the combustion engine that they also adore and almost worship. 
Um, there's the witness thing, which um, is introduced in the movie before we know anything about the War Boys. They're just chasing Max, and one of them falls and shouts witness. And eventually we come to see through example rather than explanation that this is part of their culture and that it's part of um, them being witnessed by surviving members of the tribe as glorious in battle and therefore worthy of transcendence into Valhalla. So it's all these really beautiful little details that that aren't reliant on dialogue, which is, I think, really rare, unfortunately rare in screenwriting these days, uh, but also super satisfying to see in an action movie. As, as you were, you guys are talking, one connection I think I just made was, I'm not, I don't know, maybe this is just a load of crap, but, you know, Furiosa also has her ritual of putting the grease paint on like, the top half of her face. And I wonder if there's some, I don't know, thematic connection between like sil bright silver on the mouth, visceral yelling, screaming, and then dark black stealth on the eyes of like, she is focused, she is watching, she is not, you know, screaming, yelling, vicious, tearing. She is, you know, keen. That's something that does actually come up in dialogue at one point. They're called black tops, which are the trusted imperators of the Warboy clan. So she puts it on actually at that time when she is first coming up uh, to make that deal because she needs to be identified as still being part of that that cadre, you know. So many wonderful little details that take so many rewatchings in a good way, <laughs> like fully get you know a full picture. But I, I like that that notion of like understanding where the focus is on the face uh, as sort of like a sort of a nice deeper analysis of like where those very different characters are are focused. And there's, yeah, there's also the, like the bullet farmer's bullet teeth that he can pull out. Um, there's uh, Immortan Joe's blood red teeth when he's screaming with his mask open, which is at the same time chilling. But also a moment later, one of his guys rides up and just says, are you all right? And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> and I always get a laugh out of it. <laughs> but yeah, just so much, so much attention to world building. And also um, a lot of really great uh, themes that I think are, are covered in this movie, which I guess is something we're planning to segue into at some point. I think we can segue into it right now. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave, take it away. You sound like you, you were going straight ahead. Well, I mean, the one thing that really stands out to me are the feminist overtones of this movie. It made use of um, a consultant. They uh, they touched base with the writer of the vagina monologues, uh, Ev Ensler, who was consulted about the portrayal of the film's female characters. I think the wives are really interesting and dynamic each in their own right. In a, a way that could in a lesser movie just have been written as, you know, damsels in distress, uh, especially when we have Cheeto um, who attempts to run back and join the war party again, which kind of brings an interesting complexity to the wives individually, as far as them not all being on the same page and all being individual characters. Um, we meet the Vovolini. And when we do, they suspiciously say of Nux and Max, the men uh, and Theron's response is they're reliable. It's not that they're good people. It's not that they're safe necessarily, but the use of the word reliable really cements the reality of the wasteland and its dangers toward women. There's the conversation then afterward about um, the Vovolini shooting, uh, you know, marauding attackers, but then it melds into a discussion about seeds, which is kind of a nice duality, the strength of these women in a dying world while still maintaining hope and vision for a sustainable future. The Vovolini also in battle are getting drop like flies and it's brutal which i really appreciate because it doesn't pull the punches because they're older women when they're warriors in a war um and they also those actresses largely did their own stunts for that 
Um, another use of thing that pops up a lot is use of imagery. Uh, the bullet shells falling back into the cabin of the war rig, still hot against Angharad's pregnant belly, perfectly expressing the stakes and the themes simultaneously. Also, Max washing off the blood of slain enemies with mother's milk. And finally, in the end, a really hopeful, a really hopeful ending, which is that the war boy pups, uh, the young male children of the tribe, are the ones that actually flip the lever to welcome Furiosa and the crowd up. Uh, it's a hopeful ending about how patriarchy isn't uh, an instinctive or natural human condition, but is a learned and reinforced construct. So I think all those themes run through this movie really overtly. This movie wears its feminist overtones on its sleeve and explores them very thoughtfully with consideration from pronounced writers in the field and from women. And I think it nails it in a way I've never seen an action movie nail it. Yeah, I really loved the wives and their relationship that they had with each other, um, along with Furiosa. I mean, and and Dave, you mentioned this, particularly what happens with Cheeto too, because you could have all of this infighting, but instead it's just like, stop, like we need to get out of here. You're worth more than that. And the reason why Cheeto gets like that in the first place is because I, I can't, I don't remember her name, but um, the his like favorite wife, I guess. Ang Herod, yeah. Yeah, she she had I died or or was dying, and and because it was just like they had built that relationship up so much that you know seeing her peer die was just so like heartbreaking. Being like, well, it's over anyway, you know. And it makes me wonder what the other wives are like, like the 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 mothers that we see. Um, and they're the ones that, you know, like put put the water on at the very end. Like, do they also have that kind of relationship? Just left me wanting more, which is a good thing. And an interesting thing with Cheeto, too, is that it, it comes to it, that comes up again, where toward the end of the fight, she is sort of like hearkening to Rictus to carry her over into a Morton Joe's vehicle. But the reason she's doing that at that point is because she's distracting him from Furiosa charging toward the front of the convoy where a Morton Joe is. So it, it kind of becomes like not, a, not not necessarily like a character flaw, like a completely reasonable reaction to an insane situation for that character at one point, but then also is revisited in a moment of redemption. And so much revisiting and callback and symmetry throughout the entire film. Um, we talked about the use of blood earlier. Um, I didn't notice my first watch said that it said um, <clears throat> universal donor is what was tattooed on his back. And then, of course, so he can give blood to Furiosa at the end. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote down a whole list of my phone on callbacks, uh, but my phone deleted the notes that. Oh, no. Um, but like the wrench was this is the most important pair of uh, bolt cutters ever, I think, in cinema history. <laughs> I'm so glad the bolt cutters were repeatedly used throughout the movie. So I think that just really, you know, the, the use of symmetry just really helps bring a sense of completeness and fullness um, that is just like the cherry on top of what is probably a near perfect movie. I also, I liked the, I think you, you all touched on it a little earlier, um, but the notions of like growth and like fertility, like the Citadel's like obsession with fertility and like whether it's, it's, using these wives for babies or harvesting blood or things like that. Um, this is like fight for resources and life. I liked the fact that the journey to the green space, is it called the green space? My the green place. The green place. <laughs> um, 
being undercut with like, well, it, it doesn't exist. Like you, you saw it was that muddy, barren landscape, this like obsession with this sort of concept of, of fertility. But really it's, I saw the moment, the most beautiful moment, like showcasing like hope for growth was when one of the uh, Vubalinas showing one of the wives the plants and the seeds that she had been keeping. And it was sort of that like generational, um, in, like she was sort of imparting this sort of generational, uh, I don't know, it's it not really lesson, but just resource of, of these seeds and these plants that it wasn't this sort of like obsession with baby making that would be the, the future, but this sort of like generational uh, relationship around around plants and like restoring the Citadel to being a place of like growth and, uh, promise for, for everyone, not just like using women as, as baby makers and like just procreation and, you know, baby machines. But, um, but yeah, I, I liked kind of that returning to, to the notion of, of fertility and growth and, and seeing that scene between the, older Vuvalina and whoever the wife was. Was it the redhead that she was talking? I don't know. Yeah. Blonde. The blonde. Yeah. And I think also too, instead of relying on something natural, instead of bullets or oil, do I think like using a natural, you know, like a green resource instead of destruction or, you know, crude oil. Yeah. I, I feel like the, I liked how over the course of the movie it start like the wives initially are just sort of this uh, indistinct group and kind of basically just cargo. And I, I feel like at first, when I first watched the movie, when their introduction was like this like Vogue shoot of them like draped in white, I was like, all right, whatever, who cares? Um, but I think I can now see that that maybe was intentional to kind of be like, well, at first that's the way that they're, they're seen just essentially their bodies. And then over the course of the movie, each of them plays a very vital role in the journey and in, in escaping. And you kind of tease out more of their individual personalities. So I, I, I kind of got on board with that. The one thing I'll have to say is that they still had so impractical, like they had such impractical outfits. I was like, those scarves are going to get caught on something <laughs> and they are going to die. Like just remove the linen drapery. <laughs> I was like, give them like a Furiosa like t-shirt and let them do their thing. I was so worried. It, that was the only distracting thing in their characterization. That was a problem for me. I was really worried about that one like really long scarf. Well, we see I, um, Nux tripping on his chain that was attached to uh, Mad Max too. So I, that could have very well happened. Well, as we're sort of feel like we're kind of wrapping up the episode here, any other kind of final thoughts, tidbits, uh, tidbits or uh, feelings about Mad Max Fury Road before we sign off? Uh, when I saw this in theaters, I saw it with two of my best friends. And then after we saw it, you know, my roommate and I were dropped off. And then we went to just grab a slice of pizza and the place was about to close. So they sold us three pies of pizza for $5 just so they could just get rid of the inventory. And it came with free, like 20 free breadsticks. So we just brought it back to our house and had a huge pizza feast afterward with our friends. So that was a very, that was a very good evening seeing Mad Max and then getting 
three pies of pizza for five dollars. Sounds lovely. Did you guys see it in three D? I couldn't remember if I saw it in three. Was it good in three D? I saw it in three D. Um, I don't think I don't think the three D experience enhances any movie. I've never had a good time with it, so I'll say no. There were some moments where it's like a tire is going toward the screen, or there were a few moments like that that in twenty twenty one are like, oh, this was classic 2010s 3d kind of stuff the wheel it was the the steering wheel that like goes in i was like that was made for a very specific reason (laughs) which is is maybe why my one lobbied criticism against the movie is that that and like a handful of when they're using the plows and they're like using grappling hooks to chain themselves to the war rig to slow it down some of those are clearly just like very cg for the purposes of 3d projection and they're a little distracting I think something like that, though, will only age to be charming of like 20 years from now, they'll be like, oh, I remember the bygone era of trying to force every movie to be 3D. I feel like that will have its charm in a while. And I mean, everything else is practical effects. So everything else looks great. It doesn't it doesn't really take anything away from it seeing it in 3D, but I don't think it adds anything at all either. It's like that one time in Tremors Um, where they use like this really distracting digital model of the worm when most of the things in Tremor are practical (laughs) or puppets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as, as I've said before, I have a huge connection to this franchise and to this uh, to this movie in particular for a pretty specific reason, uh, and that's that I guess I must have been about ten years old when um, my family moved houses, and I had a west northwestern facing window, so I got all the wind from across the street, uh, and I was convinced it was like the sound of like a an old ghost moaning outside my room. So I was just terrified of my new room, and. Um, one evening it was just too much and I went down and my dad was watching a movie. It was the weekend. So my mom was uh, at work and he was just like, all right, well, it's past your bedtime, but why don't you stay up and watch this movie? Um, and I started watching this movie. It started really blowing my mind. He went to bed and I finished it. So I was up until like, I don't know, like two in the morning and then went to bed without a peep. And uh, it was uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So I, I had a really strong sentimental connection to this franchise through my dad. And uh, the seventh and last time that I saw this in theaters, uh, I had the privilege of kind of returning the favor and taking him to go see it. Aww. So um, so this one, uh, this one, another one, uh, thumbs up for my dad. Uh, I love thinking about the Mad Max, like Mad Max is a movie, like, like calming the like childhood brain <laughs> wouldn't be the first movie that would come to mind as like a movie to pacify like a child <laughs> yeah i think it's more just that he was it was another alien thing where he's like oh this is a good movie go ahead and watch this one i was like i feel like there's another movie <laughs> that has a similar story <laughs> it's like oh alien <laughs> and that one also uh beyond thunderdome not not quite as intense as this picture um but this movie is fantastic. As I said, I think it's tied for the best in this franchise. There's parts that make me cry every time I watch it. Furiosa kicking Max's muzzle, uh, which is obviously super painful but effective. So she, in spite of how painful it is, she kicks him again. It's just that that raw drive of her character when they first meet and everything. Uh, another shot that always gets me is the vents of the V8 engine block of the war rig taking in air after uh, the plow puts out the fire, almost like it's a character itself catching its breath. And then finally, obviously, Furious is the big one for me. And this gets me, like, moved to tears every time, is uh, Furious's reaction to the Vavolini hand gesture. Like, when she returns to them. And um, it's another brilliant show-don't-tell moment where she's talking about her mother and how her mother passed away. And all the many mothers, the Vavolini, do this hand gesture that's um, sort of 
reaching up into the air and pulling it to their chest in kind of like a somber, but like tributary remembrance. And you see Charlie Theron's character after having been stolen away from this culture and having so few memories, having that glean in her eyes as she silently recaptures that moment for herself. And in a way, silently recaptures a sense of who she was that was robbed from her. And it's such a beautiful moment. And um, I think this movie is littered with beautiful moments in spite of being a crazy action movie. So absolutely go see it in my opinion. A beautiful movie that also has a scene of two men competing to see who can spit the most gasoline into an engine. <laughs> Which that is too. one of my favorite bit moments. The duality of man. <laughs> <laughs> tender moment too because because uh nux is doing it and then he he chokes and he's like i can't do it and then uh max comes out and he's like all right i'll take over from here it was a beautiful moment <laughs> it's also got to be an intense moment for max too because his iconic uh interceptor car the interceptor v8s which the police used to use in the first movie and he uses in the other ones has been commandeered by his his opponents who are now using it against him. So that's a, an interesting tidbit too. I loved the hedgehog cars. That's the last thing. The buzzards. Like railroad spikes. Those were so great. I want to see how they get in and out of those cars. That was another detail of like, that I would love to just learn more about. Well, thank you everybody for joining me on uh, episode 101 discussion of Mad Max Fury Road. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll probably be pulling some more movies from our top 100 list. Um, so if you want to maybe get a peek of what we might be talking about in the future, take a listen to that episode that was published last week. Um, anything we want to plug before we sign off? Toria is absent this week, but she is still hard at work on publications through Cinema 76. So be sure to check out those articles and others at that website. Yep. And uh, Movie John as well. She's publishing through too. Yeah. Well, be sure to keep coming back to Butter with that. We're going to talk about more. Um, amazing movies, more interesting movies, really, um, you know, further discussions to be had for the rest of 2021, which will hopefully only go up and up from here in terms of things going well. What, yeah, what is the, uh, what is the line? We, we who wander this wasteland in search of our better selves. It's a bit of something to think about when we go through into 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Nice touch. Nice touch. That was good.